This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. Good morning, you're with Reality Check Radio. I am Marie and I would like to introduce to you my guest this morning, Kelly Veludos, who is from ARC Education. Welcome to Counterculture, Kelly. Good morning, Marie. Thank you so much for having me on. We, well, we're really having a chat. important subject. It yeah. is a really important subject. And I just said, to, we were chatting before we uh, went live and I just said to Kelly, we've got to get this, we've got to get this out to the people. We've got so much to talk about. And let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about you and then we'll talk about ARC and then we'll talk about the important work that you're currently doing. And people are starved, parents are starved for information of what's really going on in our education Mm -hmm. system. So I think you're going to lift a lid on a lot of this for us today. So take it away. Awesome. Thank you, Marie. So um, you might detect a small accent here. Um, I was actually born in Zimbabwe um, during during the War of Independence, actually. And then I went to university in Cape Town um, during the dismantling of apartheid and lived in the UK for seven years after university and then came to New Zealand 25 years. So I'm... Basically, a New Zealander. I'm a Kiwi through and through in the, in the respect that I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else in the in the world. Um, but because of my, I guess my the, the conflict and that I've been born and brought up with, um, I've always been a bit of an out of thinker. It also helps that I'm dyslexic. I'm biologically dyslexic. I was diagnosed, which is really um, was an anomaly in those days because I'm actually quite old. (laughs) Um, But all through my career, I've been teaching now for 30 years um, until 2021, until the mandate. And um, all through my career, I've been a pariah in the system. So in that I've fought for children's learning rights, so to speak, and also I've kind of paddled against the stream of wokeism and often complete and um, how, how can I say it, um, ludicrousy quite a lot of the time. Um, I have been involved with learning support for at least 20 years of the 25 years that I have been in New Zealand. Um, So I have worked with the most at-risk students in a Desar 1 school in Rotorua, gangland Rotorua. Um, And... What, uh, what I achieved there, I'm really, really proud of because a lot of those students were put on the put on the heap, so to speak, um, as, as a waste of time, but ended up going to high school in accelerate classes. So it was quite a quite an achievement really, and um, probably the best learning grounds of my life. Um, and I moved down to the Horo Whenua 
actually down to the Kapiti Coast in 2019 and became a Simco in uh, Wellington High School. Um, and my experience around learning support in that area was, was interesting, to say the least. Being a Simco is an incredibly difficult job um, because you are always pushing up against funding deficits and not only funding deficits but a lack of access to funding, a lack of access to support. And um, when you're in a role like that, you really realise how convoluted and disorganised the Ministry of Education is. Um, I have been interviewed for, <laughs> for a strategic design job in 2018, but um, missed out on that basically because I am too much of a change maker. <laughs> so <laughs> um, it's, it's become a really big passion in my career or in my lifetime to create change and shift paradigms when it comes to education, not only for our, our children's sake, but for our sake as well. You know, education is the foundation of any kind of collective paradigm. And if we don't get that right, we're, we're on a hiding to nowhere. So, yes, that's a little bit about me. In, in 2021... That was the termination of my 30-year career. I started a business called The Arc Education NZ with two other amazing ladies who have since um, dropped off and gone off and done their own thing. But I am currently the founding director and only operational director of The Arc Education NZ. But I have a real passion and determination around promoting it and making it into something that is really useful and is really um, almost, actually not almost, definitely a model to how a system could operate. Yeah. Yeah, so providing an alternative solution to an already very complex problem. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's it's uh, it's a different it's a different kind of business because um, although I I myself am tutor and offer a few services, we're more a directory and a resource repository for. Not only in New Zealand, it's gone for all the organic marketing, but it's it's a, an access point or a connection between educators and learners. So um, educators pay a really reasonable subscription fee because you know we do have to, <laughs> I do have to live, <laughs> mm. um, and um, they are profiled in the directory and also you can have access to the resource pages um, 
And the events page is actually a free service. So if anybody has any kind of educational event, um, you can access the events page and um, put your event on the form and I will upload it for you. Um, it's it's come to the point where it will it will hopefully take off now. Um, we the more diverse um, services and educators we have in the directory, the better. Because mm. my my absolute belief is courses for courses. Um, I. I have no judgment again, you know, about what you do as an educator, because I really believe that, you know, every everybody everybody has a need, and those needs are are really diverse. So if we can have, if we can have as as a diverse range of of educators and services on the directory, we will be able to meet more needs. So you've got obviously two two groups of needs. You've got the needs of the parents and the students, and then yes. you obviously you need to resource that with the educators. I mean, so far, are you finding it is those who are working either outside of the formalised uh, curriculum, so fully private schools or integrated schools that have a more open opinion and view on education? Is that the mainstay at the moment? Actually, the mainstay at the moment is um, those educators who have stepped out of the system, to be honest. Mm. Much like myself, um, when we first started, when we first started the ARC, it was with a real strong focus on providing a platform for those teachers who had been mandated out of their jobs to be able to um, establish uh, and, and promote and support them in establishing their own independent income um, because it became really obvious to the three of us at the time that all of us mandated teachers, how absolutely reliant we are on state, on the state for our livelihood. And that is why so many teachers were coerced into doing something that's something that they really didn't want to do mm. because their whole livelihood was on on the on the skids, basically. Part of the whole co-papa around the art education was to provide a, a, a platform of support and and an opportunity for them to be able to start their own business. It's been quite slow on the uptake. A lot of people have said, oh, what a great idea, what a great idea, but people are, wait, are waiting and seeing. But in, in a situation like this, if you wait and see, then... You know, we, we don't have the people on the, on the directory, and and it, it's 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 a bit of a self fulfilling prophecy. Um, it we really, really, really more investment, um, because then we can put in marketing and um, establish teams mm. to actually make make it 
function in a really um, global way. At the moment, it's just me doing everything. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, as, as we grow, the team will grow. I truly believe that it will become a really fundamental resource and support system for not only learning support students, not only for homeschoolers, but actually all for everybody in it who has an educational need. And educational needs don't stop at formal education. Directories actually have categories for health and wellness. So anybody who, you know, has a yoga studio or a, who educates even if it isn't a formal education institution, they're more than welcome on there because the more diversity we have, the more, like I said before, the more chance we have of meeting people's needs. Mm. Yeah. So let's look at where things are <clears throat> at schools at the moment. How and where is the core curriculum in our schools failing our children? <laughs> my my <laughs> pet peeve. Okay. Any curriculum is set by gender. Whether we like to think it doesn't or not, it definitely does have an agenda. Although our curriculum in New Zealand has been touted to be one of the best, most innovative curriculums in the world, it is not everything that it has been cut out to be. We have a great key competencies part in, in the curriculum. And perhaps if we were really going to be innovative and forward thinking, that's all we'd have. Because the other part of the curriculum, which actually is the main part of the curriculum, is all about knowledge and philosophy and how we are teaching. And that, to me, can become very dangerous in that the agenda is very evident in what you are teaching and how you are teaching it. Give us an example of that. Okay. The sexuality part of our health curriculum. Gender issues are pushed at a really young age which actually is completely unnecessary, um, in my opinion. Kids should be allowed to be kids um, without having the, the burden of deciding whether they're a girl or a boy or, a, or a whatever. Just allow your kids to be who they are without having to label them in any kind of way, whether they grow up and decide when they are capable of deciding, whether they decide then what gender they are, that's that's fine. But to push an agenda onto young children, to me, is not only moral, but really, really dangerous. So when you're saying young, we're talking what, intermediate, primary? Where are you primary. at primary school? I'm seeing it at primary school. There, there are examples of of it happening at primary school, which has shocked me, and I'm not easily shocked, <laughs> as, as young as seven and eight. 
So that begs the question with these children. I mean, I know what my sons were like at seven and eight, and I had one who desperately didn't want to go to school, so it was everything mm-hmm. I had to do to get him out the door to school. And I think we get, we're going to cover attendance a little later yes. on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a huge hot-button topic, I believe. And then I had another one who loved going to school. He really wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be with his mates. He, um, he just loved everything about it. For him, it was this wonderful social utopia that he got to go to between nine and (laughs) three every day. He just thought it was the best thing ever. Mm -hmm. And so he absolutely loved it. Now, they Mm -hmm. had their own little battles to fry um, of what was going on in a day. To be actually Mm -hmm. sort of confronted and faced with that at seven and eight years old, I mean, their biggest, I mean, for one of my sons, his biggest issue was, is had I put the right things in the lunchbox? You know, that (laughs) that was... And that's what it should be. That's exactly what it should be. The burden of making our children grow up too fast, it's already showing in the cracks in, in mental health and well-being within our teenage population. Um, and, and New Zealand has the highest rate of teenage suicide in the developed world. And I honestly believe that we are burdening our children way too early. We shouldn't be burdening our children at all, not even at an early or later stage, proper curriculum or a realistic curriculum would be the key competencies and teaching our children to um, be comfortable with the power that they actually have, because we actually all have an innate ability to create we all have, it doesn't matter what ability, academic ability you have, we all have an innate ability to create, we all have an innate ability to communicate, and we all have an innate ability to connect. And those three things are actually probably the most important aspects of human existence and that's what we should be promoting at school Mm. that's what we should be developing and allowing the rest to happen does that make sense yeah yeah it does it does it's about humanizing our education system rather than the systematic dehumanization that is happening at the moment this is Counterculture with Marie. I am talking to Kelly Valudos from ARC Education. You said earlier you taught in Rotorua in a Desire One school. Now, do you think a lot of these more ideological-based curriculum, would does that have traction in a school like that? Or have those students got so much going on in their <laughs> home and social lives that they're not really terribly concerned about pronouns? Absolutely. There's so many other things that they've got to worry about that um, that's pronouns and first world problems, so to speak, mm. are really not a radar at all. I actually only really came across the problem or the issue when I moved down south to the Wellington region in 2019. I'm sure it's an issue that has been happening for a little while, but it's in the last four or five years, it's really, really been pushed and come to the fore. As a teacher, it's really been interesting to watch how it 
is a political football, how education has become a political ideological football. In my opinion, it should never, ever be. During the COVID years, I think that there have been a lot of things in legislation and also in uh, setting policy that have been rushed through without any sort of consultation. Are you seeing that now, having taught 2019 and then sort of coming out through the curriculum post-lockdowns and thinking, when did this get here? Has there been evidence of that? Yes and no. (laughs) The evidence is definitely becoming really, really evident now, like today. All the previous legislation and policy that had, had been rushed through in 2019-2020 has really kind of settled in and established itself, I think, in our schools. With, dare I say it, whether you agree with vaccination or not, I think it was a really effective, systemic way of getting rid of anybody actually going to stand up and say no or question or, you know, basically be the the checkpoint for policy. Mm. Most of us who were vociferous or parole to the system, not that full or, you know, violent in, in, in in my interaction with the system. I've always been a pariah. I've always questioned. People like me were very effectively ousted. So what's happened, I think, is with those checks having been taken out of the system, so to speak, it's just become rife because not a lot of questioning is going on. Mm. There's a lot of fear. I interviewed Helen Houghton a couple of weeks ago and Helen entered politics because of this. She was saying now that like they did in medical with the threat of if you speak out against the COVID measures, if you now speak out against any form of gender education or ideology, you run the risk of going up in front of the teaching council. So, I mean, I appreciate that you're speaking to me today because this could potentially put a bullseye on your back. For me, you know, it's not even about with gender issues, it's it's not about what a child, what a child decides they are or or how they operate. It's not about that. It's about um, systematically taking away our children's childhood. That's what it is for me. People's decision as to what gender they are has no effect on me personally at all. I don't have a, a standard standpoint on that at all but for me why would we be taking away our children's childhood that really worries me that worries me is that that we're pushing our kids into the into a corner basically a lot of the time attendance Let's talk about attendance. (laughs) That is something that has been receiving media attention and legacy media. And you posted a a very, very good blog post on this. This really piqued my interest because my both my boys are at high school at the same high school and they've got a really wonderful core group of friends and they've got one friend at the moment who is suffering the most dreadful anxiety and he has not been back to school this term. He just he literally will get his uniform on. And he's even gotten a skateboard out to go to school 
he'll get to the end of the block and then he'll have to turn around and go home because the anxiety overtakes him. So it is very, very real. Mm-hmm. And you published in your blog uh, The Nitty Gritty of Education Rebirth Part 1, and I suggest that everyone has a look at this over at the arceducation.co.nz. And you've put up there a statistic which comes from uh, Education Counts, uh, so it's a government website, statistical website, yeah. showing the attendance from 2019 through to 2022. And I'd hate to see what 2023 looks like. Mm-hmm. And it is showing that across all metrics between regular attendance through to chronic absence, the numbers. But what got me is regular attendance, which 90% or more, Mm-hmm. that we were seeing sort of around that's between 60 to 63%, which personally I think is not great anyway. It's awful. 2022, so no COVID, no lockdowns, 46%. Mm-hmm. So less than half less than of our half. kids are regularly attending school. Why? Which is, well, that's the question that we need to be asking. Instead, money is being pumped into forcing kids back to school instead of asking why aren't they attending? Why is there this huge anxiety? Why are they feeling like home is a better place or a safer place for them than school? Basically, we're missing the point. The other day I read in the paper that They're putting millions and millions of dollars into building new schools. (laughs) Why? When our roles have dropped, you ask any principal in the country, their role has dropped. From primary to high school, the roles are dropping. Our homeschooling community has quadrupled since 2021. People are not feeling that school is a safe, um, happy place to be. This age is the culmination of many years of problems. Our education system is based on the industrial model. When mass education came out over 100 years ago, um, it was definitely based on a production line model and for feeding the market, the, the employment market basically. Come the 80s, we get tomorrow's schools, which is based on neoliberal principles, all about production and money and um, getting people out to work. And we have come to a point in our human existence where that actually doesn't matter anymore for our kids With technology and um, with all the advances that have happened in the world, evolutionary, you know, advances that that have happened extremely quickly, especially in the last years or so, our kids are facing a world that is completely and utterly different and unknown to what we've had previously for the last few hundred years. I don't believe that schools, and and this isn't just New Zealand, this is a global issue, really. Schools are not designed to develop skills and the 
the soft skills and the personal skills or the personal power for for our kids to face the future. And they know it. They know it. So many of the kids that are not going to school say, and I, I know this because I work with a few of those kids, they say, well, it's irrelevant. I'm bored at school. It's, it's useless. What am I learning that for? They do not see the relevance in what they're doing. They also feel that they're not learning. They're, they're not being taught to learn. They're being taught what they need to know, um, which in this day and age, um, information is freely available. They don't need to remember things for tests and things like that anymore because in real life they can just look it up. Um, what they do need to know is whether that information is reliable, how to apply that information, and how to create something that will benefit them and the rest of the society from that information. That is not happening essentially within the system. There, it is in pockets. I'm not going to say that it's... Yeah, because it is a gross generalisation when I say that. But predominantly, unless a teacher is teaching with that basic philosophy, it's not happening. And so relevance an issue. It's a huge issue for our, our young people today. And then also, as I've said before, you know, the, the huge burden that is put on these young people to comply, to not say the wrong thing, to socially fit in school just becomes a, re a place of stress upon stress at mm. the moment. I've written down here belonging. Belonging is huge. Belonging is, and I mean, that's, look, that has always been part of school. I mean, I wasn't in the in group at high school, so I was certainly on the out group and I was bullied for it. But you know what? By not having that sense of belonging, I certainly gained a hell of a lot of resilience. So yes. there is swings and roundabouts with this. And I look at just my son's friend group. It gives me hope because this is the it, it is the most quirky collection of teenagers you've ever seen and I love every single one of them great. Yes. it is just wonderful and I love talking to them and you're right we're not giving them enough credit these kids can see through the bullshit oh absolutely absolutely you're right we're not giving them the credit for whatever reason, whether it's an evolutionary thing or whether it's a creative thing, we are seeing more and more and more neurodiverse kids coming into the system. And the system cannot handle it because so the system is very so left-brained and the neurodiverse kids are very right-brain dominant. That's what neurodiverse mm. is. So let's talk about that a little bit, having been the parent of a neurodiverse yes. child. We talked about this before we started recording. The battles that I have waged uh, in his, he's in year 12 now, so I'm nearly throughout the other side, but the battles <laughs> that we have waged in that time. And mm. hand on heart, I can say that I've been very blessed that the actual individual teachers that I've dealt with, the Senkos mm. that I've dealt with, they themselves were amazing we felt like 
and I'm going to use a Harry Potter analogy, we literally mm-hmm. felt like that we were in Hogwarts and we were fighting the Ministry of Magic. That's what yes. it was like to the point mm-hmm. where one of the key ministry people that was assigned to my son's case at primary school. And I remember one time we were really just working so hard to just keep him at school and trying to mm. not only cater to his needs, but also ensure that the impact on the other students and the teachers was not so great. And we were finally starting to get some traction and things were starting to settle a little. But he's neurodiverse. He has to ask questions. Mm. Unless mm. he asks mm-hmm. questions, he can't read facial cues he couldn't those natural social cues to him are a mystery so he Mm -hmm. requires clarification in order Mm -hmm. to know the expectation that needs to be met yes so of course that in itself is disruptive disruptive he would do that because that's what he needed and i remember this ministry wonk who (laughs) our nickname for her was dolores umbridge saying to me Marie, you need to counsel your son at home to stop asking so many questions. School is not a place for questions. It is a place for him to do what he is told. There you have it. There you have it. That told me everything I needed to know about the Ministry of Education. Absolutely. Um, Look, not the whole Ministry of Education are on that page of the book, but because everything is so siloed and so convoluted, it is incredibly difficult to access anything, funding, support, anything within the system. And I suspect it's designed that way economically. It works for the system. Yes. What we have to really keep in mind is that the system will always support the system, always. It is not about the individual. It is not about each uh, developing a human being. It is about feeding the system. And that's because the basic co-papa or the basic modus operandi, well, we could call it wrong, but it is what it is. And it is about feeding the system. That's what it's about. Access to any kind of support is nigh impossible. And you talk about individual teachers. Now, what really has irked me for years and years and years now is why aren't we training our teachers to cope, not only cope, but to to be able to um, develop an environment where all students are able to flourish. The fact that you have to speak to individual teachers about your son's way of being is preposterous to me. Everybody should have that basic knowledge, the basic skills in order to be be able to allow every student, whether they're neurodiverse or not, to flourish in their care. The system has produced wonderful, wonderful people, but the emphasis is on compliance and and control, basically. You know, it's called control the behavior in your class. Well, it's not about controlling the behavior in your class as far as I'm concerned. It's about teaching those kids how to behave so that they are able to connect. They're able to communicate. 
they're able to create because that's what learning is. Learning is basically creating. Because the focus is on compliance and control within the system, that aspect or that human aspect or empowerment is, is sorely lacking. And that is why so many of our neurodiverse youth are they're dropping off the bus with the bus going. They're just not having their needs met. It does not surprise me. I know the battle that we waged to get mm. our son where he's at. And not everybody has the ability to be able to do that. Not everybody has the time yeah. that they can do that. I mean, I won't lie. We talk about his primary school days and we call those the dark days because mm. it was incredibly stressful on all of us, including him. Yes. Because he can Absolutely. see that he's creating this pressure and division and he can't control it. No. Yeah, it is really, really difficult. And so if you are a parent out there with a neurodiverse child, just know that you aren't alone on this. You know, I mean, we all battle this. For me personally, it was developing that relationship with the Senko. One of the things that I did was I created a guide to my son. So I had this document that looked like a brochure, sales brochure. You can tell the ex-sales and marketing lady, can't you? So I created this uh, the sales brochure for my son, and it literally pointed out all his features and benefits, uh, all of the things that you needed to look out for. And so I was able to bullet point, these are all the things that he loves, these are the things that set his world on fire and get him engaged, these are the triggers that will create disruption in your classroom. So, mm -hmm. you know, and if you see this, because it was the things like those disruptions, they have that, the analogy of the frog in the pot, mm -hmm. which gets used mm -hmm. a lot with those with neurodiverse children. Yes. Because yes. it will actually be something when you light the flame, which is what's mm. going to set that mm. frog jumping out of the pot. But it's pot. all the other things that uh, the temperature as it rises, all the other Rise. things that get layered. And then the thing Absolutely. that will finally set them off is not actually the thing that upset them to begin with. And of course, teachers would not know that connection. So I created this and I updated it every year. And so every teacher, it became quite famous at both the primary and intermediate school <laughs> he was at because they would get this guide. And then I bribed all the teachers with um, morning teas and... <laughs> Things like that to keep them on <laughs> side. Idea. I had no shame. I was that mother. What, I a, just had... what, a, what a wonderful advocate, Marie. <sighs> Unfortunately, you are in the minority. What gets to me is you shouldn't have to do that. Mm. You shouldn't have to do that. That should be established already. As a CEMCO, I, I did the same thing. I um, established learner profiles for all our um neurodiverse kids in the college they were sent out to all the teachers and everybody knew and they were developed in conjunction with parents and the student themselves it wasn't just from behavior reports or anything like no. that in the high school that the boys are in, the Senko yeah. there, who is, well, she did try to retire. They've had to bring her back. Uh, she <laughs> is, she's incredible. And she's done exactly that. Like, and the number of, there's a huge number of neurodiverse children there. It's that cluster effect, doesn't it? When you have somebody yes. doing something really well, people yes. will cluster to that, which then actually yes. brings the clustering to homeschooling. Yes. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about homeschooling because I think that there are a lot of parents out there who have transitioned to homeschooling mm -hmm. or they're considering a transition to homeschooling. So what's yes. your interaction with homeschooling parents and education? 
Actually, as I speak, I'm working with another colleague and we're working on a home educator's 12-week course for all home educators who want some kind of inspiration, knowledge and support in what they're going to or are doing. And the reason why we've put this course together is because we both noticed how many parents are now choosing to go down that route. Like I said before, the official numbers of of home educators, um, because you have to get an exemption to be able to home educate without being harassed or without being outside of the law, so to speak, from the Ministry of Education. And the exemption process is taking months and months now because of the huge amount of applications that they are dealing with. And this is probably since about August 2021. I know that June or July 2021, the average amount of applications that they were processing was about eight a month, eight. By December 2021, January 2022, they were having like, I think it was four or five hundred applications a month. Do you think any light bulbs went off at the ministry at that? I would probably think they have, but in a machine that is that large and that siloed, it's very much reaction process, and the reaction is very, very slow. There's not much responsive action that comes from the ministry, unfortunately, and that's not criticizing individuals that's not these these a lot of people who are working absolutely 24 hours a day in the ministry trying to create change they are they are those amazing people but because of the enormity of the machine you become a cog basically yes there's a lot of people who have now come to the con that Either their child is not being supported or is not the school is not the right place for them, or they've become very disenchanted with how schools are run and what the agendas are that are being pushed in schools, whether teachers like it or not. I'm never going to blame individuals in my profession because who are at school predominantly are there because they want to do the right thing. Their philosophy is sound. It's just what they're working with that isn't. And you don't know what you don't know. There's a lot of parents who are coming into the homeschooling community, which traditionally has been quite siloed. So I think it's it's a trend that needs to be at and perhaps used to model different kind of system in the future, if that makes sense. If we could make school more like home, there are ways of doing that. I mean, if we looked at the Finnish, the Finnish model of education, we'd learn a lot. We'd learn a lot from them, how their classrooms are run, how their teachers are trained. It's not impossible 
it's not impossible. Uh, stopping and thinking and recreating, rebirthing education. <laughs> for those looking for resources, because you, there's been a lot that we've covered this morning, mm. obviously your web, website, thearcheducation.co.nz, yes. you, you, I really enjoyed your blogs. Where else do you suggest that parents who are just seeking alternatives or additional support that they can provide, where else should they look? Okay, so if you're looking, if you're looking for support with an exemption, which is where every where every parent starts off with, actually on on the website under resources, there are a couple of people that you can contact. One of them being Cynthia Hancox, who is our home education guru in New Zealand, the New Zealand Homeschooling Association of resources and support and information so have a look up look at that all of that is actually on the website under exemptions and homeschooling and under the resources button on the arc education nz facebook groups facebook is a very uh, resource even if you hate it <laughs> there are a lot of Groups, and you'll probably find that there will be an, a homeschooling group in your area. Um, I very, very much recommend that you get in touch with your local community because homeschooling can feel very isolated. And if you can get in with your local homeschooling community, there's usually a lot going on for them within the area. And if you are a homeschooling community and you have events and things that you would like to get out to, please use the events page on um, on the Arc Education NZ. It's there. It's a free service. And it's something that I'm quite passionate about. I'd really like to support those people who are wanting to connect and communicate with each other so yeah hopefully the arc education will become more and more useful to people as educators join and come on board and look out look out for drop the school run course <laughs> that myself and Gemma Chambers are putting together at the moment Oh, that's wonderful, yeah. Kelly. Look, thank you so much for being so generous of your time this morning and the early start. Thank I do you. appreciate it. Again, that website is arceducation.co.nz. You are with Counterculture. I am Marie. Stay tuned. We've got more music to come as well as Media Matters and the Woke Word of the Week. This is Counterculture with Marie Buskey. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio.